Welcome back to The Re-Education. First, I want to assure the listeners there are a lot of great shows in the works, and I would ask you to forgive the delay since the last episode, but we've got a few really good ones coming out, including this one. Anyway, this episode's a little bit different because I'm starting off with a monologue on the indictment of Donald Trump, and then I have a great interview with Amber Athey. She's the Washington editor for The Spectator, and it's about her new book, The Snowflake Results. So it's two different topics. Usually we try to have an interview on the same topic. This is a little different. Okay, and with that, here's the episode. What about Frank Sabaka? I'm, I'm not hearing his name in here anywhere. The union may be involved in the smuggling, but we're not getting a sense that it goes past that. This is about Frank Sabaka. The case is bigger now. Look, Missy, this is my detail. I started it. Now I'm asking, do you have charges on Frank Sabatka? Charging Sabatka at this point would lose us the wire and a chance at the real targets. He is the real target. Well, that was the immortal Stan Valchek from the underrated season two of HBO's The Wire. And I love that scene. And I love it because it nicely demonstrates the distinction between abusive investigations, or you could say prosecution, and proper investigations and prosecution. You see, because Stan Valchek only wanted to see his rival, Frank Sabatka, the president of the local stevedores union, handcuffed and perp-walked before local news cameras, and he did not care what crime this crack unit of the Baltimore City Police would catch Sabatka committing. The only thing that mattered for him is that he was arrested and humiliated. And unfortunately, there is a long tradition in America of, you know, elected district attorneys, police chiefs, what have you, really, you know, even attorney generals at times, you know, simply kind of playing the man instead of playing the ball, to use a cliche. Anyway, in that scene, the assistant district attorney, that's Rhonda Perlman, and the special police unit that is investigating the docs, well, they are the good guys because they make it clear that they have been looking into what was going on and they found that the real crimes that they uncovered go much deeper than Sabatka and his local union. Valchek doesn't care. He doesn't want to prosecute the crime. He just wants to prosecute the man. So I play this because I think the scene from The Wire tells us a lot about the quality of justice that was just served to Donald Trump in Manhattan on Tuesday. And so it's worth unpacking, really, you know, what just happened. So let's start with the district attorney, Alvin Bragg. He never explicitly promised to prosecute Trump when he ran for the office in 2021, but he did come very close. Let's talk about what's waiting for the new DA, the docket. We know there's a Trump investigation. I have investigated Trump and his children and held them accountable for their misconduct with the Trump Foundation. I also sued the Trump administration more than 100 times for DACA, the travel ban, separation of children from their families at the border. So I know that work. I know how to follow the facts and hold people in power accountable. So notice that his point here is that he will be in this better position than his opponents to prosecute Trump, a man that is loathed intensely by Democrats who reside in the Big Apple because he has so much experience already litigating against him and his organization. And this is the first reason why, if the justice system were to break precedent and for the first time charge a former president with a felony crime is what happened this week, it really would have been much better for that case to have been brought by a U.S. attorney who was unburdened by a campaign to get to his office. Now, yes, it's true that U.S. attorneys are selected, but there's a buffer there. It's not like they had to go on a campaign. And so it's something to think about because there's other Another district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, Fannie Willis, who I think is actually looking into a much more serious matter that would also potentially, you know, jeopardize legally Trump. And in that respect, you know, the fact that she is a Democrat who ran for that office potentially puts some doubt or, you know, some a question mark over such a sensitive prosecution. OK, now there's the case itself. Why did Donald Trump repeatedly make these false statements? The evidence will show that he did so to cover up crimes relating to the 2016 election. Donald Trump, executives at the publishing company American Media Incorporated, Mr. Cohen and others agreed in 2015 to a catch and kill scheme. That is a scheme to buy and suppress negative information to help Mr. Trump's chance of winning the election. 
Okay, so that was Alvin Bragg on Tuesday explaining that the 34 counts of falsifying business records, which is really just an excessive kind of gimmick because it's all basically a single transaction over time. Trump paid Michael Cohen in installments for the $130,000 that Cohen had paid to Stormy Daniels before the election. So he's saying that every count is like the check, the record for the check. So you get the idea. It's one transaction, but it's sort of made to seem bigger than it really is. And anyway, for Bragg, he says that this is evidence of a sort of scheme to deceive the voting public in 2016. Really? I mean, because that is a new standard. What Bragg is basically saying, because he's saying that the hush money to Stormy Daniels is an in-kind contribution from Donald Trump to his own campaign, what he's saying is that the voters have a legal right to true information about a politician's past adulterous affairs. And then I suppose the corollary would be that the politician has an obligation to inform voters of his past adulterous affairs, which sort of defeats the idea or the concept of hush money in the first place. Now, I mean, if you think about it, if you follow Bragg's logic that this was a campaign contribution, well, does that mean that Trump could have raised money from donors saying, please contribute to my campaign and then use that funding to pay off Stormy Daniels? Because that's kind of what Jonathan Edwards did, a former senator from North Carolina, he ran for president, had an affair and used campaign funds to pay off his mistress in that case. And if he had reported this before the election, as I guess Bragg is sort of the implication of this theory of the crime, well, as I said, that would have defeated the purpose of hush money in the first place. So that's a huge problem. Anyway, in that press conference, Bragg said that Trump may have also inviolated New York election law. Well, that's interesting, I suppose, but he doesn't include any of that in the actual indictment. So how do we even know what he's talking about or what crimes and like in all of this, again, is extremely important because on their own falsifying business records, especially since he's not falsifying business records in order to get a grant from New York State or the federal government. He indicated there might have been some falsification of business records having to do with taxes, although it's unclear how what taxes would have anything to do with it. But it's not like he did it for those reasons. So the point is that if all you did was falsify business records, well, that's just a misdemeanor. You don't really have a felony case. In order to make it a felony and also to kind of get beyond the statute of limitations on this, because this is now 2016 and 2017, in order to do all of that, you have to tie it to some sort of felony. And so in this particular case, the felony is a violation of campaign finance law, which is that this was a campaign expense, according to Bragg, and it was not reported as such. All right. It raises a lot of questions because this is a very novel theory of the law. And people say that it's a novel theory, but that's a real problem if you're going to be charging somebody who is currently running for president in 2024, at least in the Republican primary, and you're going to come up with this brand new interpretation. It raises a lot of questions. And it also, those questions become more poignant because Bragg's predecessor at the Manhattan District Attorney, Cyrus Vance, well, he did not pursue this case, nor did the Justice Department pursue the case, even though they've had it in their lap, so to speak, since Michael Cohen, Trump's fixer, flipped in 2018 and struck that plea deal with the Justice Department. All right, finally, even if we accept this tenuous and novel interpretation of federal law regarding hush money and campaign finance, then it's still, at the end of the day, a reporting violation. I cannot stress this enough. And here I want to quote from my own piece for Barry Weiss's great free press operation that I wrote, came out on Tuesday. Recall that last year, the Democratic National Committee and Hillary Clinton's campaign were fined for a very similar violation. They had obscured the reporting of payments to a former British spy for his work on a dossier that falsely alleged Trump had colluded with Russia. Instead of reporting the expense as dirt digging or scandal mongering, the campaign claimed the fees were for, quote, legal services and, quote, legal and compliance consulting, end of quote. All right. Now, listeners obviously will recognize that this is, of course, the infamous Steele dossier, something we've talked a lot about on the show, and in my view, one of the most malicious documents in recent American political history. This was the basis for the elite press to obsess for more than two years about a false allegation that Trump's campaign had colluded with Russia. The FBI then also bootstrapped this opposition research to its own investigation into 
Trump's ties with Russia, which was already petering out, by the way, by the end of 2016, and used it basically to place a newly elected president under the Bureau's microscope and in the process crippling his presidency. The dossier also had a minor effect, I should say, on the election in 2016 because Hillary Clinton's campaign, of course, pitched a few of the bum steers within it to reporters. Some of them ran news items before the election. Now, Clinton's campaign and the Democratic National Committee lied in their campaign expenses to conceal the role the campaign played in procuring this investment, this misinformation. But the campaign and the DNC were only fined. There was no felony prosecution of Hillary Clinton. So remember, after the election, when reporters began to hear that the Steele dossier also was brought and paid for by the Democratic Party, Mark Elias, the lawyer for the Clinton campaign, who himself arranged for the payment of the dossier, lied repeatedly to journalists when asked whether or not the Democratic Party paid for it. Did any of that get charged with a felony offense? And I am not calling for this to be treated like a felony. I don't like the idea of criminalizing political differences at all. But since this is what Alvin Bragg is sort of doing in terms of, you know, not reporting this campaign as part of a scheme to defraud, you know, the election process and cheat and so forth and so on. Why does this not rise to the level of a felony? I think it's an important question in light of Bragg's indictment. And this gets, in my view, to the most serious problem with Bragg's prosecution. It is so obvious there is a double standard at play. This is why even some of the most resistant-minded anti-Trumpers are deeply uncomfortable with this result. Ian Milhauser of Vox, who, you know, I normally, my eyes glaze over when I read him because he is such a progressive, like, he says there's a problem with it. I want to read from my friend David Frum in The Atlantic. And as you guys probably know, if you read me, me and David disagree very much on Russiagate. And David Frum is probably one of the harshest critics of Trump. And here's what he had to say in The Atlantic. I'm just going to read this one paragraph. Prosecutors would have been wiser to see Trump brought to justice on the most serious legal issues. This Manhattan indictment may, through its sheer pettiness, inadvertently diminish Trump's misdeeds. It may even more worryingly diminish his accusers by casting them, much as Clinton successfully did Starr's team a generation ago, as purient snoops. End of quote. Donald Trump's appeal is based in part on the conviction that the rules are rigged against him and his supporters. And this intense feeling that elites do not hold themselves to the same standards as Trump and his supporters, whether it's the disparity in intensity under which the Justice Department pursued January 6th rioters versus the 2020 rioters in the wake of the George Floyd murder, or it's the FBI's willingness to use Democratic opposition research to obtain a surveillance warrant against a Trump campaign advisor. Okay, this is an intensely felt feeling, and it is something that it's not entirely true that the system is rigged. It's not entirely true. Donald Trump has done lots of bad things, but it's also true that people in positions of power, whether it's the FBI or the Manhattan District Attorney, have put their thumb on the scale and bent the rules in order to get him. So two things can be true. Trump's a big norm violator, and the people who consider themselves the resistance to Trump are also norm violators. And we should know that every time that the Democrats prosecute the man and not the crime, every time the Democrats act like Stan Valchek, when it comes to Trump, they are proving the former president's point. Welcome back, everybody, to The Re-Education. We are really lucky today because our guest is Amber Athey. She is the Washington editor of the Spectator, Spectator magazine, a, a magazine where I occasionally contribute, and also the author of the upcoming book, The Snowflakes Revolt. Amber, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So why don't we just start off and tell me a little bit about this book of yours you have coming out. You know, what's the main thesis and, you know, what did you find out? Tell us a little bit about it. Absolutely. So the book was really a joy to write because it's part memoir about how I got into media, part investigative reporting on the sort of downfall of the media and how far it shifted to the left over the past 10, 20 years, as well as a little bit of prescription. And the general thesis of the book is that I think both conservatives and left-wing politicos got it wrong in regards to what the outcome of this progressive activist class on college campuses was going to do when they graduated. On the left, you had the media really rejecting the idea that it was a problem at all, that you had woke mobs on campuses trying to shut down speakers and generally holding really illiberal ideas 
and they accused right-wingers of overinflating the issue. On the right, I think people recognized that it was a problem, but they misunderstood what the solution was going to be. And I think I was guilty of this too at the time where we heard this common refrain that the snowflakes were going to go into the real world and they would be melted by reality. You would have bosses who would reject the idea of safe spaces and trigger warnings. They wouldn't be able to get a job because they would have these resumes filled with left-wing activism jobs, essentially, or internships. And instead what happened is these people graduated and they went on to work for major media companies, major corporations, Hollywood. Some of them went back into academia and they exerted a whole lot of influence by using the exact same tactics that they did when they were on campus. And now we have basically every major American institution being run by a vocal minority of really insanely left-wing millennials. What Maybe talk a little bit about what, what are those tactics that you're talking about and why do you think they're so successful? A huge part of it is public shaming. And this can come from social media, from meetings that are held internally at companies. Sometimes they'll send around email chains to get people to sign on. And it's really just about a culture of shame and silence. So people are cajoled into signing on to whatever pet cause of the day is being advanced on the woke playbook, because if they don't, they will be accused of being a racist or a transphobe or a bigot or whatever label applies to that cause and being suspicious of it. And then they use the support that they've garnered among individuals to go after the people who are perceived as being in power. That could be newsroom leaders, corporate boards, and, and they'll do it publicly. They have no shame in going on Twitter and establishing a campaign with hashtags and, and timed tweets or timed Facebook posts or Instagram reels to make the organization that they want to affect change and look as bad as possible. They did this on campus when they would hold sit-ins in administrative offices or they would, in my experience at Georgetown, they were really good at Twitter campaigns. And this seems to be really effective with boomers in particular, who are the people who tend to run these institutions because they don't really understand how social media works. And so to them, five tweets is a PR crisis. Like they think that is the worst thing in the world for a group of people to go on Twitter and accuse them of being racist. And they haven't learned that if you appease the people who are calling you racist on social media and give them what they want, that they will continue to use those tactics because they've learned that they're effective. I've got a couple questions and a couple ways, places I want to go. But let me just ask you this. Does it, do you feel like maybe things are beginning to turn a corner? I'm thinking of the recent open letter that was coordinated by a group called GLAAD regarding trans coverage of the New York Times. And I was pleasantly surprised to see the editor of the New York Times sort of basically say, thanks for your input. We're going in a different direction. And it was very different than the response to the outrage over the publication of the New York Times of the Tom Cotton op-ed, which was only three years earlier, which led to the resignation, of course, of Barry Weiss and the ultimately the firing, or I suppose resignation under pressure of the editor of the opinion section, who was probably an insider favorite to run the paper. Are we seeing, I mean, are, are we in a different place kind of culturally, politically? I think we're getting to the turning point. We're not quite there yet. The New York Times response to those employees who signed on with the, the GLAAD letter is a great example. The New York Times actually has apparently started disciplining the employees who were a part of that activist effort, which is pretty much brand new for mainstream media to have that response to people who are trying to shame the paper into covering what they want or taking a certain editorial line. There's also an example. Well, I mean, I think when the Washington Post fired Felicia, what's Yeah, that's, that's uh, actually the opening of the book. And another thing I wanted to talk about, right. which was when Felicia Sanmez went after Dave Weigel publicly instead of through internal channels about a joke retweeting a joke that she decided was sexist, she eventually was fired for violating the post social media policy. And now she apparently works at an, an REI in downtown Washington, D.C. So she's not even working in journalism anymore. So those are two great examples. But 
based on the research that I did for this book and the people that I talked to, the general consensus is that newsroom leaders still don't fully get it. They don't really understand just how much of a threat this is to basic journalistic principles and their ability to run a newsroom. And so they're starting to push back a little bit, but I think until they fully come to terms with just how much they've allowed themselves to be controlled by young people who, in a lot of cases, are not even actually part of the reporting or editorial team. You'll often have people like graphic designers or people who are in charge of tweeting going after editors for basically practicing proper journalism. And also people who don't have much experience or talent in the field whatsoever. So they've allowed themselves to be the puppets of a class of like wholly unimpressive people who are not qualified to be making decisions on anything, let alone the editorial line of some of the biggest news publications in the country. So we're getting to the turning point, but I, I think until they fully grasp just how much of a threat this is, we won't see it in, in a wide array of places. All right. Well, I, I kind of want to turn around a little bit and just, um, I like to uh, steal man stuff on this podcast. So let's maybe try to take the strongest version of the argument against what you're saying. And that is that over time, cultural mores will change. If you go back, you know, I'm Gen X. So if you go back to before we were in the work, where I was in the workplace, I guess, we you would find newsrooms that were white, male-dominated, and were exclusive environments. Oftentimes, it's very difficult for women reporters, even if they were there and they had jobs that were, you know, on an equal level of the reporters. Let's say they weren't, and they weren't like researchers or secretaries or something like that. It was just by nature of the fact of like the culture of the newsroom or the culture of the corporation that it was very difficult to be a woman. It was very difficult to be a black person. It was very difficult to be gay because there was this kind of clubby insider culture that even though the legal barriers were in places, what led to an unequal outcome. Just address that and just to say, there are people who will say, and what you're seeing now with your generation is just the latest version of that as we deal with the fact that, you know, we have you know, more people who are identifying as non-gender or non-gender binary or trans or whatever it is, that it is just a sort of reflection of the evolution of cultural norms. And sometimes that makes the old guard uncomfortable, but there's nothing really to see here. What would you say to that? Absolutely. My pushback to that would be that this isn't a case of young millennials who hold left-wing views trying to get a seat at the table. These are people who are flipping the table over and then trying to whack the newsroom leaders over the head with it. And they they fundamentally don't believe in the basic norms of journalism. So it's not a question of these people are underrepresented, therefore their views are underrepresented. The problem is that they don't want anyone else's views represented. They want only their view to be the one that is considered in the pages of whatever mainstream media outlet that we're talking about. And this goes back to the parallels with woke activism on college campuses. It wasn't a question of, we don't like that Ben Shapiro is coming to campus, so we are going to bring a counter speaker to respond to him, or we're going to encourage a debate with someone, him to have a debate with somebody. We're actually going to throw Molotov cocktails at whatever building he's supposed to appear in at UC Berkeley so that he is not even allowed to appear. Right. And that's the same exact mindset that is going on at the mainstream media outlets right now, is you're not even allowed to publish Tom Cotton's view that the National Guard should be sent in to quell riots in Minneapolis or whatever major city that was, because that is actually violence. Speech is violence to them. They catastrophize, over-catastrophize everything. Everything is an existential threat to them whether it's speech or different ideas, right? They actually believe that words are violence. And you can't reason with people like that, right? I mean, it, it's, it's not like you're bringing these people in and, and you ask them, well, what is it that yeah. you think we should I've do better in our newsroom? What issues do you think we could cover more? What viewpoints do you think could be reflected more? Because their response would be, you have to get rid of everything that I don't agree with and basically, I'm in charge of the paper now. And that's just not a feasible way to run a company that is supposed to be reflective of a diversity of viewpoints. 
Well, you can run a company like that. <laughs> right, but you could do not a legitimate news organization. Yeah, yeah, you can run any company however you want. We right. live in a, in a capitalist system where if you own the thing, you can go ahead, try. But they did give this a try in a country called China. It was called the Cultural Revolution. One and a half million people dead later, mm-hmm. the leaders of China realized it's not that great an idea. So actually, sometimes the middle age and the older people have some good thoughts and that you can't just sort of single-handedly dismiss them and saying, oh, we have a new way of thinking about things right now. That's the thing there that's wild a- about it, if you don't mind if I jump in, because yeah, yeah. there's an insane level of arrogance oh, among people who have such little life experience and who typically come from some of the most wealthy, privileged backgrounds and work at some of the greatest places to work in the country in terms of power and salary and access. And, and yet, they act like they're in the salt mines. Yes, they, they act, act like yes. they're like slaves or something. Absolutely. It's right, yeah. <laughs> and, it's, and it's interesting because there, to a certain extent, it doesn't really matter. We used to say, well, you know, the only thing that matters is the, you know, what identity boxes that you click. Not necessarily so, because we've seen plenty of, you know, black people, gay people. There's plenty of people who, if you don't agree with the intellectual, of the, the ideological orthodoxy, they will, they're white middle-aged men. They're like, you know what I'm saying? They're from the whatever. And they just are there because they're in solidarity. They're allying, you know, with this group. So it's, it, I always think it's a little bit of a, it's not exactly what they say. It's not all about, you know, making sure that, you know, women and trans and all these other vo- people are voices are heard. No, it's just about you can only hear our ideological perspective. Yeah, I mean, if it were the case that they were trying to make supposed minority voices heard, I wouldn't have been attempted to be canceled three different times because oh, no, I'm wait, a pe- woman. When did people try to cancel you? Oh, all the time. <laughs> but but I mean, you're, you were at the Daily Caller and now you're, I mean, you can't really, you're not going to get canceled because you're on. Well, the... yeah, I mean, I'm fine. And I don't mean that in a derogatory no, no. way, by the way. But they tried really hard. But I mean, the point being... The very people who claim that their views are underrepresented because they lack institutional power are actually some of the most powerful people in society. And journalists in particular wield a lot of power because they have giant platforms that they can use to make any person bad or, or evil to the rest of America. They can unilaterally decide, I mean, with the help of their editors, who is persona non grata and which ideas are not to be trifled with, which ideas are equivalent to Nazism. I mean, they use the most absurd labels. And yet the, the refrain is that journalism is no longer about both sides and objectivity, which I kind of argue in the book was never really the case, but that was what they said. Now journalism is about speaking truth to power and making sure that you are a voice for the vulnerable. Well, who's the vulnerable? Because it's not you and it's not your group because you have every facet of society unwilling to say anything that could potentially offend you because they don't want to lose their job or their their social ties. It's ridiculous. And what is truth? Which is a question that has bedeviled philosophers for millennia going back to the Greeks. But if you were born in like, you know, 1998 and you are, you know, at Vox Media, then guess what? You... You've, you've cracked the code. But they know it. These the, kids know You know, it. I wish you could go back in time and tell Socrates because you finally figured it out what ca- t- truth with a capital T is, right? Okay. <laughs> now, you, you, I have to say, this, this your, your guest, you becoming a guest on my podcast was the result of an extraordinary piece that I saw that you, you dug up the style guide for Politico. Talk a little bit about that. I was I was reminded of the classic George Orwell novel, 1984. I wanted to send you a note that said the story is double plus good. You know, like so. Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, I want to let why don't, why don't you why don't you explain what you learned in this great scoop of yours for the spectator? Certainly. So I talked to a number of former Politico reporters who were at the publication when they were going through their phase where they had guest authors of the Playbook newsletter. Right. And one of those guest authors was Ben Shapiro, who we've mentioned earlier. And the staff did not like that, at least the progressive activist members And by the, the way, staff. this was a story at the time, remember? Yes. 
There, remember, there were tweets there. I remember there were when tweets. that. When they wrote I, a letter to the editor, something along those lines, and and this right. also apparently inspired their decision to create a an employees union. And at the time, to their credit, Politico did kind of stand up to them. They said that they didn't, you know, regret having Ben Shapiro write the newsletter. But as these Politico reporters explained to me, the progressives in the newsroom finally realized just how many of them there were. And they decided that they needed to exercise whatever power they could more regularly. And this led to complaints against a reporter named Gabby Orr, who's at CNN right now, and she's a very talented reporter. She's very good at her job. She wrote a very long-form piece about the debate over, essentially, transgender youth, and specifically how conservatives and Republicans were going to use this as a wedge issue heading into the midterm elections. And she quoted several conservative activists, including Terry Schilling, who's at the American Principles Project, and Stephen Miller, who runs the America First Legal Foundation. And the employees, the woke activists, took issue with this article because, according to them, Gabby had not properly explained that the quotes Terry and Stephen gave to them were offensive and transphobic. So after whatever quote Terry Schilling gave for the article, Gabby was supposed to insert her opinion that what he said was bad and evil and transphobic in a news article. And also she was supposed to explicitly explain that when they used terms like biological man and biological women, that was also offensive. So Politico, the editors actually set up a call between Gabby and the individuals who had complained And it basically turned into a struggle session. They accused Gabby of being secretly on the side of these conservatives she had quoted because she previously worked for the Washington Examiner, which was a center-right outlet. They said that she would probably need sensitivity readers for future articles so that she wouldn't dare publish anything as offensive as this again. And to her credit, I think she was pretty pushed back on all of this and and left Politico, I think, not long after because of how absurd the whole thing was. But Politico marched on in the direction of appeasing these people who were complaining about specifically the paper's cover of transgender issues. They brought in a group of transgender activists. So not even, I mean, these people call themselves journalists, but when you look at their social media in their articles, it is clear that they are just left-wing activists. Their words are indistinguishable from something you would read on like Media Matters or the now defunct blog Think Progress. They come in, they tell the reporters that actually presenting both sides of transgender issues, meaning questioning hormone therapy for children, for example, is actually a violation of journalistic ethics because it is a journalistic ethic to speak on behalf of the vulnerable. And so therefore, if you question any part of the vulnerable's narrative, and I put that in air quotes, then you are violating your journalistic charge. Then they released this new style guide. This was in January of 2022, so not that long ago, about a year and a half ago. And in this style guide, they ban terms like biological man and woman because if you use that in reference to to a transgender person, then you are supposedly rejecting that what they identify as is what they are. So for example, you're talking about a man who identifies as a woman. You actually can't even say identifies as. A man who is a woman, you cannot say that's a biological man because that questions the fact that they are a woman. I mean, it's really insane stuff and kind of difficult to wrap your head around if you're a rational thinking person. But this also came along with getting rid of pretty much all other gendered language. So mankind, man-made, manhunt, You can't say uh, waiter or waitress. You have to say server. And also on the transgender issue, you can't say even biological sex. Even biological sex is not something that you're allowed to say at Politico now. So this style guide is, it actually prevents reporters, I think, from even discussing issues surrounding transgenderism in a way that one is factual And two, allows you to grapple with this relatively new concept that has a whole lot of questions surrounding it. Because if you're not allowed to 
question someone's identity, so to speak, in the piece, your readers can't even understand that you're talking about a transgender man to woman. Like there's no, we don't have the language available to replace the terms that they want to get rid of. And so they're fundamentally forcing reporters to take their side on the issue. Well, they're using the tool, and this is a similar thing that was done with the recent failed campaign with the New York Times. They're using the issue of a style guide, which, I mean, I, you know, many years ago, well, I'm now a columnist in the New York Sun, but many years ago when I was full-time reporter at the New York Sun, there was a style guide which had, you know, political things in the style because that was the voice of the paper, which is sort of fine. Mm-hmm. But this is like activists who are this issue of like, well, you know, you need to adhere to the style guide or journalistic ethics really just to win the argument because they're, if you can define the terms of a debate, then that's how you, that's, that is how we, you know, hash things out without violence in a free society. That's, we, we use language. So it's like stealing a base right. in that They're trying regard. to appeal to the fact but that there are... But it's pernicious because when you're talking about yes, they're journalistic trying to institutions, appeal. which have to be you know, committed to the idea of at least pursuing the truth, if with also the humility to know that no one has a monopoly on it, it's a, it's a hard balance sometimes for people, especially now it appears, that this is really, it's, you know, kind of dissertations in, or in 1984 on the idea mm-hmm. of newspeak, which was like, it was an open conversation. It was like, isn't it a wonderful thing to destroy words. And that's kind of what they're saying. It's like, don't use the word mother. Don't use the word man and woman. That's a much larger point. And you're sort of doing it. And it's in the name of safety. It's in the name of creating a safe space for people who might read something and feel offended. And that is the equivalent of violence. And the whole thing in view is really pernicious. And it's, it's saddening that so many, so many newsroom leaders seem to be going along with it. Have you seen evidence at Politico that the style guide is there and that, like, they don't really, they can't write anything on trans issues anymore or things like that? I mean, do we have evidence that this has worked or is was this done to sort of appease the activists and then, you know, people are going to write what they're going to write? Yeah, it's a great question. And one of my sources told me that there are instances in the style guide where they would typically be changed back to what we would consider the normal language at the editorial level. However, a couple of days ago, I think it was Thursday, they published an article about a bill in Florida or activists in Florida, something along those lines. I'm trying to remember exactly what it was. So it was it was an article about a potential six-week abortion ban in Florida. And in the second paragraph, it says not pregnant woman, it says pregnant person. So, and I I have this somewhere that I can reference and read it exactly to you because I think it would would blow the listeners' minds. But this is the application of the Politico style guide. Lawmakers in the House and Senate filed similar legislation to make abortions illegal two weeks after a pregnant person's first missed period, tightening the 15-week ban they approved last year. So... A pregnant person who missed a period is obviously a woman, but you can't say that according to Politico's style guide. So there is evidence that they are actually using this in practice and not just providing this as guidelines or suggestions, but that this is actually a sort of mandatory way that journalists have to write their stories now. Wow. Do you think it's going to be something that sort of, I mean, like, listen, there's all kinds of examples of terms that people used 50 years ago that nobody uses now. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it does. (laughs) Do you think this is going to be one of those where eventually we're just going to say pregnant person instead of woman? It seems kind of crazy to me, but then again, I'm 50 years old. So I'm as I'm as I'm maybe I'm just, I'm aged out of it. I'm like, it's always say pregnant person. It's fine. Who cares? You know, it seems crazy to me, but then I think about the fact that, like queer was an entirely different term when I was growing up, and now it's actually come to be used to write. Maybe you can explain this to me, because I don't understand it. I always thought that queer was a slur for gay. Now you can be a heterosexual and identify as queer, just because you know I think you want to like. That's what it is. 
I don't understand. So it doesn't it. mean anything. By I, the way, that's what no. it, then it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> no, it okay? doesn't mean anything. You then can queer be, is just a word I like to yes. say. It's just it's just you can a be a woman who like dresses sort of tomboyish, and you can identify as queer, and that's totally acceptable to the LGBTQIA plus plus community. Like that's just a thing now. It still is confusing to me because I'm like you. I grew up where queer was an entirely different thing. It was a slur for the gay community, and I don't even like using the term community. So, by the way, it's okay when when a when a community and a minority group takes a word that is used to denigrate them and then refashions it in such a way to say, "No, I'm proud to be queer." That's great, bravo! I'm I'm totally cool with that. I mean, it's up to the group, right, to make that call. But in this case, you know, I have I have younger cousins who who are explaining to me, "No, no, no, you can be queer and still be straight." I'm like, "What?" Huh? I don't understand it, okay. but I do worry that we're heading this direction because the Washington Post a couple of years ago made the same switch to pregnant person and people who have periods or menstruators, which is yeah, perhaps the most dehumanizing term that I've ever heard to describe women in my life. But yeah, I mean, uh, it's not just... Yeah, it makes it seem like you like a woman, a human woman is a cow right, or like something. Like our, our sole ridiculous. function yeah. is to have periods. But um, yeah, so it's not just Politico... And I think it speaks to how these individuals, these activists have gotten more sophisticated because you kind of alluded to this, how they are now using journalistic principles that maybe older people in the newsroom hold really dear to them and, and really are, are reverent toward. And they're, they're using it against them because now they can say, well, the style guide says this. You can't argue with the style guide. This was put in place by editors. Or you can't argue with the fact that that we've reached the truth on the question of transgenderism and a transgender woman is in fact a woman. And so you have to put that in your article. Otherwise, you are abandoning the journalistic principle of going after the truth. Like, I think they really started to understand that this is a way to to functionally get people to to report on things in a way that they approve of without it seeming so activisty. It's just a little bit more insidious, I think was the term you used. All right. Well, I wanted to, again, I like to steal man stuff. So I want to try to make the argument, just make a couple points, which I think, because we're generally in agreement that that might be overlooked, but I think it's important to address. So the first thing is, it's not the same because the Trump supporters don't have the position of cultural power that I would say the anti-Trump position in America has today. However, within that world, the, the sort of Trumper, the true believers, the people who think that the 2020 election was fixed and so forth, do you think that sometimes they exercise a similar techniques, similar kinds of tactics against outliers or dissidents within their own circle, which is to say, who's most at threat from the sort of the, the snowflake woke activists in newsrooms? Well, it's, it's not really conservatives. It's, it's the liberals, the, old, the, old, the older generation of liberals who want to, you know, who still consider themselves to be, you know, against racism and all these other kinds of things. Not to say the conservatives are racist. I didn't mean it like that, but you know what I'm saying. Like just uh, yeah. to sort of... Um, in a similar sense, couldn't you say that, you know, there's all this pressure on a lot of conservatives that, that may have even, you know, voted for Trump because they couldn't have cast a ballot for Biden or Hillary, but they just don't accept, you know, his rambling madness on, you know, the 2020 election or they, and they don't accept, you know, sort of these retcon efforts to try to talk about January 6th, even though I'm, I don't want to open that can of worms right now but my point is is that isn't there sort of a similar thing like they 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 find past tweets i've seen it we've seen it with people who are conservatives who you know in in that world but you know a similar kind of thing happens and oftentimes it's it's also driven by ironically the same generation of the snowflakes so to speak is sort of they, except they're on the other side yeah i mean i think there's what a lot of that is due to the fact that they were steeped in a lot of the same tactics. So, for example, both young young people on the right and the left understand the power of social media and how to wield it against people who are older than them. They understand cancellation campaigns. 
They understand public shaming. I mean, they really get all of these tools. And I would argue that younger members of the right didn't really start using those until they saw how effective it was by their woke counterparts. Because when I was in college, and I write about this a lot in the book, at Georgetown, a very liberal campus, I was an outspoken conservative, we were very much like, all right, we're the principled ones. You know, we believe in free speech. We believe in forgiveness for mistakes. We believe that people can change their opinions. We believe in grace and, and all of these wonderful things that I think obviously are I still believe in. But we saw that those beliefs did not get us as much institutional power as the storm the gates and refuse to leave the dean's office for three weeks while like brethren send us pizza. And I, I, I genuinely think that young conservatives are taking a page out of that playbook because they saw that it was a way to win. And conservatives in general now are a lot less they have a less of an icky feeling about wielding political power and about doing what it takes to win, sometimes at the expense of what we would traditionally consider to be conservative or libertarian principles. It's funny. I did a piece when I was columnist at Bloomberg where I went to Berkeley's campus the second time they had invited Milo Yiannopoulos. Remember him? Yeah. And I wanted to, I wasn't as, as interested in Milo, although he's a, he's a very colorful character. I was more interested in who was who were the Berkeley conservative kind of exactly what you were saying was like, listen, you don't know what it's like. We have these groups that will put out wanted posters with our faces to our fellow students saying, meet your local campus fascists. And that is, I mean, you know what I mean? They're they feel hunted in some ways at their yes. college. I remember when I was in college, and I was on the left, more on the left when I was in college, but when I was in college, we, I, I was friends with the head of the college conservatives because we were both really interested in politics and we liked to argue. Whereas it seems like, you know, a generation later when I did this piece of Vintine, it was a completely different world. It was like you could tell there was a bunker mentality and they really did feel like they were in a cultural war for their own survival. In the case of the conservatives, where I kind of thought that was right if they wanted to stay at Berkeley, I didn't think it was true in general. Whereas I do think that that sense of like our survival, it's an existential, is is usually a kind of a, a totally inflated hyperbolic feeling on the part of the left. But I did think in that case, there was something to it. Like it was, they were, I mean, there was violence to try to mm -hmm. prohibit and to stop Milo from speak from speaking. It's an extraordinary thing. And I would hate to see the right sort of adopt the same attitudes, and I think sometimes they have, or same the same position. Because one of the things I think that one of the one of the one of the great one of the sort of arguments in the favor of of, of the conservatives is that conservatives do not mount pressure campaigns to take Joy Reid off the air the way that the left does for Tucker Carlson. The right does not try to stop left-wing speakers or left-wing professors or whatever on campus. The right kind of understands that it's that they're going to probably not be a majority and it's okay. And, you know, I mean, maybe you could comment on that, the idea that like it was a very different experience being right on campus, you know, in your generation, because, you know, it was just, you know, like you, you really were targeted. You really were. The, the people were trying to see that, you know, you they, want, they, they didn't want you to say anything. They wanted to silence you. Yeah, it's so true and a really important point. I mean, I definitely feel like just the amount of vitriol I received for holding what at the time were fairly anodyne conservative positions. Like made, what? I mean, I was just like your run-of-the-mill Marco Rubio fan. Like, I was not, you know, a hardcore winger at that time. I would say I probably Are you like was, a hardcore winger now? I probably am, yeah. <laughs> probably, <laughs> by most people's standards. That's fine. I'll admit it. But I would definitely cop to the fact that that campus environment made me so much more reactionary. And it doesn't do that for everybody. For some people, they, they comply. They shut up. They don't talk about their politics unless they're in polite company. Or they only bring on people who are sort of right of center and they don't want to make waves. 
for me, I have just always been very outspoken. I've always been taught by my parents that if somebody is trying to bully you, you kind of punch them first, whatever. That's just how I was raised. And so I dug in deeper and I went even more hardcore because I wanted to make a point. Like, you cannot do this to silence me. I'm not going to go along with whatever your game is. And it was a hard four years. I mean, I loved Georgetown. I had a lot of great friends. I, I did plenty of non-political stuff. I played field hockey on the club team. It was great. But on the politics part of it, it was like a never-ending battle. And a friend of mine who I'm still really close with today, we talk about some of the reactions that we got to bringing Christina Hoff Summers on campus. We were actually the first campus to do that before oh, she a, went to Oberlin. She's a national treasure. I know. She's, I love she's Christina Hoff Summers. Yeah, and she's been she, a guest on the show, by the way. That's that's wonderful. She's she's yeah. fantastic. And my friend is like, I just don't know that I could ever go through something like that again because it was so exhausting. I mean, you're constantly, what, what happened? We brought her through the Center for Conservative Women, which at the time was known as the Claire Booth Loose Policy Institute. And immediately we had Facebook groups popping up from people promising to hold safe spaces at the same time as the talk. They demanded a trigger warning for the speech itself. They, they said that Christina was a rape apologist and thereby the college Republicans were rape apologists and we didn't care about holding sexual abusers accountable. Just really bizarre stuff. At one point, our club was reported to the student events coordinator because we were supposedly creating an unsafe environment for other students. So we had to go in and have all of these meetings about how to secure the event. And at the time, Georgetown was on our side, which was which was nice. Not a lot of administrators would have been willing to stand up and with the college Republicans, but we did. We had the event. We had protesters all throughout it. They didn't shout her down, but they did stand in the back holding rather rude signs about how, again, she was a rape apologist and she hates women. She's advanced, has internalized misogyny and all those wonderful catchphrases that the left likes to throw out. And it was just a period of like three weeks where our entire campus existence was about defending ourselves from these relentless accusations that we were horrible people because we wanted an acclaimed feminist scholar to come and speak to our club. It was outrageous. And, and it, that was one example of some of the battles I would say I had to go through. But it was, it was tough. It just was. And Again, some people thrive in that environment and like to go to bat for their ideas and don't back down. And some people, and I don't blame them for this, just want to be done with it. And they just want to have a normal existence and they don't want to be constantly justifying their beliefs. So it, it's a very real, on campus, especially when I was there, I don't know what it's like now. I'm sure it's very similar. There was a real effect that the liberal left had on speech and not just the shutting down of speakers like we saw in news stories. But I can only imagine the number of conservative or right of center students who refuse to ever talk about politics or offer support in any way to someone who could be deemed unacceptable by the left because they were afraid of their social status suffering and also their mental health. Mm. I mean, that kind of thing is, is exhausting and we're really, really hard. Let me ask you kind of a question here, sort of spitballing, but do you think, Amber, that the debate, that the sort of cultural de political debates that are tearing us apart right now, in some ways are, you know, a kind of outgrowth of enormous prosperity? And what I mean by that is that if as a society we were in the middle of major war like World War II, or if there was some famine, or, I mean, we just had the COVID outbreak, but let's say it was much more deadly, right? Because, in you know, as far as pandemics go, COVID really doesn't register when you compare it to, say, the Black Plague or something like that. That, like, when societies are faced with massive calamities, they really don't have time to tear each other apart on what pronouns you're supposed to use. And so, like, one of the results of just having enormous prosperity and peace, relatively speaking, I mean, there was, of course, the 9-11 attacks, but it wasn't like 
we were, you know, we've, we haven't had a draft since the Vietnam War. Is that maybe part of this? And I'm not arguing for calamity. I'm just saying that, like, it's just one of these things where, like, we'll find something. Because when you listen to the language, especially of, you know, the, what you call the snowflakes, the woke, the woke, the illiberal left, which I think is great a way to sort of say it, they talk about it as if they're facing the worst tragedies you can imagine, when in mm -hmm. fact, their lives are pretty good com in comparison, if you want to take a look at it. And, but, but, but it's like, there's something deep within us that we have this sort of unquenchable thirst for meaning, and therefore we exaggerate our travails to the point where they become these existential problems when they shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. Well, the sort of famous quote is, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. Like, that's sort of the, no, what that, yeah, that's like the, yeah, right, the cycle to be. I would just put in a plug for the fact that we've seen decreasing ties and social ties and communal ties as part of this because yep. people are not able to find meaning outside of their their own existence. And there's a general malaise that that is it's like a, a cloud of smog over the younger millennial and Gen Z generations in particular. And there's an insane rise in mental illness among young people and also suicide partially due to the pandemic, but I also think due to this lack of meaning and this lack of purpose in their lives. And one of the reasons that this never really jived with me is like, I grew up with plenty of hard times. My family was middle-class, but you know, we weren't wealthy by any means. And my father was a, a blue collar worker. He was a plumber in a union. My mom was a stay at home mom when I, after I was born. And my dad had a lot of health issues throughout pretty much his entire adult life. And so we were acutely aware of, of how tough things could be. We had moments where we weren't sure if he was going to be coming home from the hospital during that trip. You know, it's not a normal thing for a kid to come home from school and her dad is just waking up. And the only way they can spend time together is doing puzzles because he's too weak to do anything else. And it's not a pity party. Like, we, I had a great childhood. My parents did a wonderful job of shielding us from some of the struggles as much as they could. And I am very, very happy and grateful to them. And, you know, we did, compared to a lot of people, we were actually doing very well. So to go to Georgetown and feel so immensely lucky and privileged that, one, I got in, two, that my family was somehow able to afford it because we got such great financial aid, just stepping on campus, I was like, this is the best. How could anybody possibly feel like they are being wronged or that they are somehow uh, got a bad lot in life? It just didn't make sense to me. And I was hearing this from people who went to $20,000 a year private schools or boarding schools and came from, you know, the Northeast U.S. It just it just did not compute. But that was what they would say. It was it was like they were so desperate to be considered a part of a victim class because that conferred some kind of status onto them. And it, I think a lot of them also felt guilty for the fact that they were quite privileged, that they did come from a coastal city and their parents were quite wealthy, white collar individuals. They had to create some other way for them to be, to be coddled and considered special and unique. And they took that into the workplace, I think, where again, we've talked about this, you have people working at one of the greatest legacy media outlets in the world, and they still think that they are- a They act like it's Buchenwald. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, yeah, well, Amber, I'm, I, I'm looking forward to reading the book when it comes out. When is it being published next week? March 21st. March 21st, it's called The Snowflakes Re Revolt. Is that it? Okay. That's it. Read her great piece of The Spectator about the Politico style guide and follow her work. Do you write for anyone besides The Spectator? The Daily Mail occasionally. Occasionally The Daily Mail, making her way into UK journalism. <laughs> and Amber Athey, this was great. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and we'll hope to have you back. Thanks, Eli. I really appreciate it. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.